bow with me in prayer here this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as a local church today to sing praises to you, to glorify you, and to worship you. Father, we are in awe of who you are. We are in awe of the grace that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in awe of the salvation that you have bestowed upon us. And I ask this morning that you would give us hearts full of worship, that you would give us hearts to honor and to praise you and to study your word that we might be equipped to live for your glory. And I ask that you help me to be faithful to preach that word here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, it's always an honor and a privilege to gather together as a local church, but more than that, it's an honor and a privilege to stand in this pulpit to preach the word this morning. I'm incredibly grateful to Brother Joseph for that opportunity for today and on Wednesday. I'm grateful for his faithfulness as a man who rightly preaches the word of truth and for the ministry of both him and his family, their faithful service to this congregation. Uh, It's rare that you find a man who is willing to stand for the truth while also shepherding with a heart of love for the people. And I think that Brother Joseph certainly has that rare combination of gifting. He told me about a month ago that um, this would be an opportunity that would arise and asked me if I'd be willing to preach, which I appreciate the advanced opportunity. But on the one hand, I'm also aware that giving a preacher a month to prepare has its own dangers, if you will. So I'm going to try to be aware of the fact that, as one of my friends says, there's a fine line between a hostage situation and a long sermon. And so, (laughs) Lord willing, we won't have anybody falling out of windows or anything like that here this morning. But I I want us to go to the book of 2 Corinthians together. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. And the subject of this text is spiritual warfare. Now, whenever I say spiritual warfare, I don't mean that like the Charismatics and the Pentecostals do. I'm not referencing you going up on a stage with some supposed faith healer, having them wave their hands, and then you jump back five feet like you've been shot by somebody, some Jedi Knight wielding the force or something. I'm not discussing some sort of a fleeting emotional experience. Spiritual warfare, battling temptation, fighting against heretical doctrine, those things will certainly involve your emotions. But the battle goes much deeper than mere emotion. Because if you rely on emotions for your spiritual stability, you're going to be in trouble. What we need to understand is that spiritual warfare, it involves the struggle against the sins of the flesh. But spiritual warfare, it is inherently theological. It is doctrinal. It is about the truth of the Word of God. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, where did the Lord go? He rightly quoted the Scripture. Satan quoted the Scripture, but he sought to pervert it to fit his own agenda. And whenever we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, what are we going to see the Apostle Paul doing in the midst of a spiritual battle? He's going to rely upon the weapons of God. He's going to rely upon divine truth. The church today is fighting many battles. False doctrine, false teachers. We see all of those fronts that we have to fight on. 
But more than that, we as individual Christians, we fight battles, don't we? We have to fight against the sins of the flesh. We have to fight against temptation. We have to stand against sins like gossip and slander and lust and anger and pride and arrogance. Situations and scenarios arise that would test our patience, that would test our contentment. And we need to know how to stand strong for the glory of God, whether we're talking about collectively as a church fighting against false doctrine or individually striving against the sins of the flesh. And we need the power of this text to understand how to do that. And so let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6 this morning. I, Paul, entreat myself to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence, as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. It's important for us to consider as we're walking into this passage that the church in Corinth is in quite the mess. I heard a pastor one time tell a story of a church that split over the color of toilet paper in the restroom. It strikes me that the church in Corinth is in that sort of a situation, that they're in turmoil, they're in strife. We see this multiple times over the letter. One example is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Paul says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Putting this in modern day English, Paul says, I chose not to visit you because if I would have, I would have had to smack you over the head with a board because of the way you're acting. But you see, he's dealing with these issues that are going on in this church. You can see that in chapter 10 if you look down a little bit in verses 10 through 12. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So the charge against Paul by his opponents is that he's some kind of a weak man, some kind of a weak man who writes strong but doesn't show up strong whenever he's actually physically there. And Paul says, don't worry, I'm just as bold in person as I am in my letter. And what Paul is dealing with is false apostles, false teachers, who are giving it everything that they have to deceive the church in Corinth. They're trying to wreak havoc amongst this local congregation. Look at chapter 11, verses 12 through 15 as another point of context. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostle of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, 
their end will correspond to their deeds. Certain men like to set themselves up as proclaimers of truth. They try to appear Christ-like. They try to boast. They try to brag about all of their supposed accomplishments. But in the end, they're nothing but false teachers. These are the kind of individuals that Paul is dealing with here in this situation. And so as we approach 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, that's the context that Paul is dealing with. And the question is, what is Paul's response going to be in this situation? You see, we don't need to come to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and merely see that Paul puts up a fight. It's important that we understand that Paul does fight, but we need to know more than that. We need to know how the Apostle Paul fights in this battle. We need to understand the weapons that he uses in spiritual warfare. Because when it comes to you and I undergoing the attacks of the enemy, we must not only understand that we need to fight, we must understand how we are called to fight the weapons that God has given to us. You can be a courageous man. You can be heroic. But if you take a knife to a gunfight, you're going to get shot and killed before you can do anything. And so also in spiritual warfare, you can be as enthusiastic if you want to be, but if you bring the wrong weapons, you're going to get slaughtered. And so we need to see how Paul handles this situation. And he opens up in verse 1 by talking about his own demeanor and by mocking his opponents. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. And so we see here that Paul points to the example of our Lord. He's not acting in a rash fashion. Paul's not walking into this situation as some kind of a loose cannon. Neither is he going to back away from any sort of controversy which might occur. He walks under this scenario, into this scenario under control. He entreats them by the meek and the gentle character of the Lord. You think about how meek Jesus was in His earthly ministry. And really that should cause us all to stand back and to evaluate our own lives. His humility, His control. The fact that He never fell prey to sinful anger. Now certainly this is the same Jesus who drove the, the wicked out of the temple. So we need balance here, absolutely. But whenever we're walking into a theologically controversial situation, it can be very tempting for us to not be humble, to not be meek, to not be gentle, but instead to merely let our tempers fly and to go off in all kinds of rashness. Immediately when we do that, when we fall prey to that kind of sinful anger, we're picking up the weapons of the flesh. We're not walking in submission to God when we act that way. But what we want to do is to remember the example of our Lord, to appeal to others on the basis of Christ as Paul does here. And also, if you remember down in verse 10, which I read a few seconds ago, Paul's accused of being bold when he's far away, but weak when he is in their physical presence. So he's responding to that in a mocking way here in verse 1. When he mentions being humble in person, but bold when he was away, that becomes clear as we read into verse 2. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And so Paul here, he's already planning on being bold. 
towards those who are the false teachers, towards those who are targeting him in this situation. His prayer is that he would not have to show that same kind of boldness to the church in Corinth as a whole. Now this tells us a couple of things about Paul's mindset as he's going into this scenario. First, he's not an individual simply looking for a fight. That's not the Apostle Paul's attitude. It's been well said that as you go through the book of Acts, you see that Paul's preaching, it ends in one of three ways. It ends in a riot, it ends in a revival, or it ends in something of both at the same time. And I completely agree with that. That's the truth as you go through Acts. But what we need to understand is that the apostles didn't have an axe to grind. That was not their mentality. They were not just confrontational for the sake of being confrontational. They were confrontational for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were confrontational for the glory of God. That's why they confronted the lost world. The truth of the gospel is confrontational. It tells a sinner that they are commanded by the holy God to repent of their sin and to bow before Christ and to place faith in Him. And if you're preaching that message out of a heart of love for God, love for Christ, love for the truth of His Word, love for others, then you're going to be in the midst of trouble and strife at some point just as the apostles were. But if you're stirring up trouble because you're acting like an arrogant idiot of some kind, then you and I need to repent of that if that's our attitude. Let whatever doctrinal warfare you enter in be for the sake of Christ and the sake of Christ alone. And so Paul's desire is that the church in Corinth would repent, that there would be restoration, that when he comes to him, to them, he, he doesn't have to engage in, in this entire fight. That's Paul's preference here. But secondly, we see as it pertains to Paul's mindset, if there needed to be a theological fight, Paul wouldn't back down. Paul would view it as his duty before God to jump into the middle of the fray. That's evidenced by the words, as I count on showing in verse 2. Paul was planning on coming with great boldness already. Planning on coming with confrontation. That's a major rebuke to our culture, isn't it? Many would look at Paul and say that this type of notion, this type of notion that, wait a minute, you're actually going to rebuke someone for something that they believe, that runs contrary to everything in our society. They would tell Paul, you just need to learn to be more accepting. You just need to be more tolerant, Paul. Go read a couple of Oprah Winfrey books. Go sit under a couple of Joel Osteen sermons. Learn to be more accepting of all views. Paul's just a meddling troublemaker, according to them. Just leave well enough alone. Don't stick your nose where it doesn't belong. But that's not Paul's reaction here. Why? He he is compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. He, He is compelled by His love for these saints that they would not be led astray into error. You know, we we all find ourselves in those situations. Those situations where you see a family member or you see a friend who who they're erring in some way. Not that I have to go through that because all my family and friends are perfect, of course. But, no, we we all find ourselves there. And we have to go up to them and we have to call them back to the truth. 
We have to share biblical truth for them so that they might repent. And if we're honest, they have to do that with us sometimes as well. That's why we need the local church so we can come together and keep each other accountable and encourage each other in the Word. And that's not always a comfortable situation, is it? Many times it's a very painful process to work through. We've all been in those moments. But nonetheless, we're still called to take that step. We're still called to intervene and to share the truth because our passion for the glory of God and the good of that person's soul means that we must do it just as Paul does it here with the church in Corinth. And we have one more point that we need to navigate here in verse 2 before we can move on. At the end, we see this suspicion by some that Paul and his companions, they're walking according to the flesh. Some of the Corinthians, they were charging Paul with conducting a fleshly ministry. They're saying, you're using worldly means to try to accomplish the end goal. Maybe there's a hint here where they're charging him with some kind of immorality that's possible as well. But the primary focus is on how he conducted his ministry, what weapons he was using in the fight. How do I know that? Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. See, that's where Paul immediately goes to to address this charge. There's a contrast here in this verse. We are walking in the flesh on the one hand. We're human beings. We're physical. We're walking. We're living in this world. But on the other side of that, we're not conducting our warfare according to the tools of the flesh in the flesh, not according to the flesh. That's a key point, isn't it? He didn't use the beliefs, the practices of this world, Paul didn't, to achieve his goal. And that's really a dividing line. That is really the dividing line. Because if we believe that Christ is who He says He is, if we believe that God is as powerful as He says He is, if we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and if we believe that the word of God is inerrant, it is infallible, it is inspired, it is sufficient, and it is authoritative, then why would you ever pick up the weapons of the flesh? The only reason is because you don't believe what you say you believe. That's the only reason. The kingdom of God does not need the armor of Satan to get the job done. The church doesn't need the rusty sword of worldly wisdom in order to defeat the enemy. Christ, ruling and reigning on His throne with all authority in heaven and on earth, does not need the ideas of this world to know what to do next and to accomplish what He has intended. Paul looks at all that. He looks at all of these worldly weapons and he wants none of it. He doesn't want any of them. Why? Why not? Today, several want us to mix the two. They tell us, mix the Lord Jesus Christ with the world. That's the argument we hear so often, isn't it? You know, you can have a little bit of LGBTQ ideology just so long as you don't take all of it. You can have some social justice and critical race theory. Just don't go all the way. That's what we hear. Why not go down that path? 
why should we stand with Paul and look at the weapons of the world and give a firm, resounding no? He gives us the reason in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What is Paul talking about by this reference to stronghold here in this text? It's the Greek word okurama. This is the only time that this word is used in the entire New Testament. But if we look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we begin to get an idea of what's at play here. When David says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer in 2 Samuel 2.22, that Greek translation, it's the same word, the Greek translation of the word fortress. Obviously, if David uses it in reference to God, if it's translated in reference to God, it's talking about something that's incredibly powerful. That, that's the point I want you to see. In the historical context, it would have referred to some kind of a military stronghold. Most ancient cities, they would have had some sort of a fortress on a hill where the citizens could have gone for refuge. It, it would have been a very strong position, a heavily fortified place. And Paul here, he mentions it strictly in a spiritual sense. Enemies. Strong, powerful enemies that must be taken down that stand in opposition to the troops. Paul sees them. He knows they exist. He knows who they are. And he also knows that the weapons of the flesh won't do it. Look at the enemies of the church. Look at the enemies facing the church in Paul's day. You had the Jews. Beyond the Jews specifically, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Sanhedrin, the scribes. All of them opposed, but not just opposed, violently opposed the church of Christ. And then you come to the rest of the world, you have all the pagan religions, the thousands and thousands of false gods. Then you had Rome. You had the great Roman Empire, one of the mightiest in the history of the world. Rome, where Nero would rise up and he would slaughter thousands and thousands. He would slaughter Christians. He would set them on fire. Rome, which opposed Christianity, because believers said, Christ, not Caesar, is the Lord and King to whom alone worship was due. In this time, you had heretical doctrine. You had all kinds of sects, all kinds of divisions rising up, trying to lead the saints astray. And then on top of all of this, you had the typical pressures of the ancient world. You had poverty. You had disease. You look at all of those enemies. You look at all of those strongholds. All of them. And you realize Christ has overcome every single one. He called only a few disciples. Only a handful. And He said, go turn the world upside down by preaching the Gospel. By preaching all of My commands. And by His power, it happened. The Roman Empire isn't here anymore, but Christianity is. Nero slew his thousands. Christ conquered and is victoriously reigning 2,000 years later, the Jews tried to stop the message of the Lord. But like Rome, their rebellion was nothing but futility. And how about in our own day? Do we see any strongholds that need to be destroyed today? We look on the one side and we see heretical doctrine. We see the Roman Catholic Church. 
We see the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, all of the cults combined, spreading their heresy. We look again on the horizon, and, and we see many issues with big government. We see many issues with big tech, who, to say the very least, are not friendly to Christianity. And then we look again at the strongholds, and we see the mountain of woke liberal beliefs. We see individuals bowing to the idol of LGBTQ agenda. We see the child sacrifice of abortion. The list goes on and on and on. Strongholds. Strongholds that stand against the knowledge of God. Strongholds that need to be obliterated. How will they be destroyed? How will they be overcome? They will be overcome by weapons with divine power. They will be overcome by God acting through the means that He has chosen and through that alone. What about in our personal lives? What about in our sanctification process? How will the sin in our life be cast aside and put away as we increasingly grow near to the day where we will be with the Lord? By weapons of divine power. By Christ and Christ alone. Not by Christ plus something else. In any case, whether we're talking about the church collectively or ourselves individually, it is not the tools of the flesh that will gain us victory. That is what blows my mind. That is what is shocking to me. How many professing Christians believe that the church needs help from some sort of a worldly ideology? You don't need that. We don't need that. What we need is Christ. Brethren, do you hear me? Brothers and sisters, we need the Gospel. We need the Word of God. We need prayer. We need the fellowship of the saints. We need the weapons of divine power. Where are the men who will stand with the Apostle Paul and who will shun the weapons of the flesh as being nothing but worthless? Where are the pastors who will look at the ways of the world, the wisdom of the world, and will cast it aside clinging to Christ and to His Holy Word? Where are the churches who do not long to be entertained, to have their ears tickled, or to merely be told what they want, but to serve Christ, to know Christ, to be rebuked and encouraged by the preaching of His Word, and then to go out and to pick up that Word taking on the strongholds? Where are those who will look upon these strongholds, who will take up their weapon of divine power, and who will charge straight at the gates of hell, knowing the power and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are willing to go into the lost world and to preach the Gospel. Christ Himself promised, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail. His Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is a weapon of divine power. You see, it wasn't that Paul trusted in Paul and that's why he's so confident in this text. No, it was because Paul trusted in Christ, who is the ascended Lord who reigns at the right hand of the Father, and he knows the power of Christ. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.25, he says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Why he has the confidence that he did. He knew the power of the Lord. Our problem is not that we face powerful enemies. 
Our problem is that we're too prone to underestimate the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I look at the enemies facing the church today, and then I look at myself, I see why we should run for the hills. <laughs> I see why we should just tuck tail and run. That's true of me, that's true of you, that's true of any of us, that if we individually look at ourselves, we see the challenge. And it looks horrifyingly daunting because we look like grasshoppers in the midst of giants. But when I look at the enemies in comparison to Christ, I can say with Joshua and Caleb, let's go. Let's go get them. Because in comparison to him, they are nothing. They are absolutely nothing. When I look at the enemies of the gospel in comparison to me, it's like I'm looking up at Mount Everest from the bottom. But when I look at them in comparison to Christ, it is as though they are nothing but small ants in comparison to the size of the entire universe. That is how powerful He is. That is how sovereign He is. How perfect He is and how glorious He is. And all of the enemies shall meet their appointed end. They shall all be crushed by Him. And His kingdom shall reign for eternity. And so take heart. There is no sin in your life that the gospel cannot overcome. There is no battle in sanctification that the Lord Jesus Christ cannot win. And there is no enemy facing the church that shall not be defeated. And there is no one who shall overcome His plan. There is no one who shall overcome His throne. We see Paul evidencing this confidence in verse 5. We destroy every arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul doesn't leave this to chance. He doesn't leave this to mere probability. He doesn't say we might be able to do this. It's possible. He says we destroy. There is a certainty in the tone of this text. Not, not certainty in the sense that he knew when he preached every single person would be saved. That's not what this text is saying. But certainty that God will accomplish His ultimate victory. That He will accomplish the victory of His kingdom according to His perfect plan. It is a certainty that these things will happen. That the world, the lost world, cannot stand. And I want you to notice the nature of these lofty opinions and arguments that Paul mentions in this text. He describes them by saying that they are raised up against the knowledge of God. Ultimately, this is a comprehensive statement. It's anything that would seek to become between an individual and knowing God. Religions like Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. We could think of separate issues like atheism and agnosticism or the secular mindset, which would all be arguments raised against the knowledge of God. And so what is the goal of the church? to destroy every single one of these things. To destroy any argument, any opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God. Any argument, any opinion that goes contrary to Scripture. This doesn't just impact the public arena, the preaching from the pulpit, or or whatever else that might be public. It, It impacts our personal lives. It impacts individual conversations. Because we need to seek to be ready to share the Gospel with the Hindu, with the Buddhist, with the Muslim. We need to be ready to engage the college student who is engrossed in atheistic secularism. 
We need to be ready to point them to the truth of the gospel. We need to be ready to point them to who Christ is. The point being that biblical Christianity, it calls upon followers of the Lord to confront false views, to confront these views of a heart to see souls saved and discipled for the glory of the Lord. We are the ones who are willing to go right into the fray, who are willing to go to the point of chaos, to the point of conflict, to show unbelievers the truth of the gospel. But it's not just that Paul destroyed these arguments by using the weapons that God given to him. Notice the last part of verse 5. He also says, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is Paul's ultimate objective. It's not just that he wants to destroy all of these things. He also wants to bring them to Christ. That's both aspects of his duty here. If you're thinking in terms of a construction project, Paul wants to metaphorically place dynamite under the buildings of this world, demolish them, but that's not his end goal. His goal is for the name of Christ to be built up. It's for them to be discipled. It's for the nations to be called to King Jesus. That goes back to the Great Commission. I looked the Greek word up here. The Greek word noema, which is translated as thought in this text. And it literally means that every single thought down to the point of even the purposes, the, the dispositions of your mind. And we find an interesting process if we trace this word for a second. It's actually used six times in the New Testament, five of which are here in Second Corinthians. If you turn forward a little to chapter 11, verse 3, chapter 11, verse 3, He says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is the same word. He's afraid that the noema, the thoughts of the Corinthians, would be led astray. This isn't the only time that Paul uses this in reference to the work of Satan. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, which is probably a very familiar text. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We're not ignorant of his noema, his designs, his devices. Same word is when Paul says he wants to take every thought captive. Are you seeing the contrast here that runs through the book of 2 Corinthians? Satan has his goal to take the thoughts of of individuals. He has his goal to deceive, just as he did in the Garden of Eden. Satan wants to take individuals' minds away from God. And Paul is concerned that the Corinthians will fall prey to his cunning scheme. And so he says his goal is to take every single thought captive. How are you going to withstand the attacks of the devil trying to deceive you? How are you going to withstand the attacks of the forces of hell trying to take your thoughts astray? You must pick up the Word of God. You must pick up the Gospel. You must clothe yourself in the armor of God. You must spend time in your knees on prayer. And you must do battle with these weapons that God has given to His saints. 
That is the incredible application for us. It's the calling to take every thought captive. To not, to not be deceived by Satan in any single thought. To not be deceived by the arguments of the world. Paul wants to see the entire world, every single thought, bowed to King Jesus. And we must be relentless in this pursuit. We must be relentless in having our own innermost thoughts and desires in conformity to the Lord. That's why the psalmist David, in Psalm 119, 14 through 16, he says, In the way of your testimonies I delight, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. We're to cultivate a mind that actually finds joy in God. It delights in the word of God. It delights in his holy standard. And that's what we want for everyone. We want for every individual. We want to see them to come to know God. That's why we demolish these arguments. That's why we try to take every thought captive. It's not just that we're to pluck the sinful actions out of our own mind. We must do that. But we must go down to the heart of the inner man and reorient our desires according to the power of the gospel. Reorient the joys of our life. And that means we need the power of God. We need the power of His Spirit working through His Word. That's why in John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. We need the Word of God. And we need to be dependent upon it. That's the weapon. That's the weapon that's going to overcome all of these false ideas. It's the truth of Scripture. Now we come to our, our final verse, verse 6. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul's ready for the lines and the sand to be drawn between who's going to be obedient and who's going to be disobedient so that he can punish those who are trying to assault the church. This shows us the serious nature of false doctrine in spiritual warfare. That Paul is ready literally to punish those who are perverting the truth. And so what do we learn from this text? We see, first of all, we must not pick up the weapons of the flesh, but those of divine power. We see that we need to know that reality personally, individually, in our own battles of sanctification. And we need it collectively as the church engaging the lost world, seeking to share the gospel. Secondly, we see the expectation of victory. We're not on the losing side. Jesus Christ reigns and rules, and He will be victorious. We can know that Christ will conquer. We can know that His enemies shall be destroyed. Those truths are solidified. There is no doubt. And thirdly, we see the necessity of bringing every thought captive both our own thoughts and seeking to bring everyone's thoughts captive by the proclamation of the gospel, that they may know the joy of serving Christ. And finally, we see the seriousness of all of this in Paul's comments here in verse 6. Too often, we as modern-day evangelicals were prone to fall prey to skepticism, to negativity, to depression at the state of affairs around us. But what we ought to do instead is to pick up what God has for us and to use those weapons and to be faithful and trusting the results to His good providence. William Wilberforce was the man who led the charge to abolish the slave trade in England several hundred years ago. He was a faithful 
Christian who sought to apply a biblical worldview in his work. And Charles Spurgeon was commenting on William Wilberforce once, and he said this. Spurgeon says, A healthy church kills error and tears evil in pieces. Not so very long ago, our nation tolerated slavery in our colonies. Philanthropists endeavored to destroy slavery. But when was it utterly abolished? It was when Wilberforce roused the church of God. And when the church of God addressed herself to the conflict, then she tore the evil thing in pieces. I have been amused with what Wilberforce said the day after they passed the act of emancipation. He merrily said to a friend, when it was all done, is there not something else we can abolish? That was said playfully, but it shows the spirit of the church of God. She lives in conflict and victory. Her mission is to destroy everything that is bad in the land. That's the type of biblical attitude we need in our own day. The church is not weak. Our Lord is not frail. We need to understand the glory of Christ. And the church is strong, not because of our power, but because of the power of her head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever enemy stands in our way, it shall not last. It is nothing in comparison to the power of the Lord. And so let us take hope as we see the, power, the truth of this text. As we see the power of Christ. And let us be encouraged to march forward in faithfulness for the glory of His name. Bow with me in a word of prayer as Brother Ron comes to lead us in our closing hymn. Father, I thank You for the opportunity to dive into this passage. I thank you for the truths that you revealed to us, that you are not obligated to reveal yourself to us, God, but you have done it by your grace. You have done it by your mercy. And you have shown us your power, something of your power, something that we as finite human beings cannot totally understand how powerful you are. Yet what we see and what we know, we are in awe of. I ask that you would help us to be faithful that we would know who You are, that we would have confidence in You, Lord Jesus, and that we would go out proclaiming Your Gospel and seeking to live faithfully for Your sake. And it's in Your name I pray. Amen.